Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. The coronavirus pandemic has meant that few of us are engaging on our usual daily commute. But with the vaccination process in full flow, how long will it be before the Welsh masses are back on the move? And as manifestos are written, will calls for relief roads become louder? Or will active travel, new bus networks and Wales's newly nationalised rail network win the peace? Joining me and Kerry this evening are Stuart Cole, Professor of Transport at the University of South Wales. Hello, Stuart. Hello, uh, Matt. We have Christine Boston, Director of Sustrans Cymru. Hello, Christine. Hi, good evening. We've got John Pocket, former Director for Wales of the Confederation of Passenger Transport, uh, which is the professional trade association of the bus and coach industry for over 20 years until his retirement at the end of 2020. So hello, John. Hi there, Matt. Lovely to have you all here with us this evening. So before we look to the future, we want to reflect a bit on the past. We've had 22 years, give or take, of devolved government in Wales. How have the Welsh government dealt with transport uh, since 1999? And are there any highlights or lowlights you'd like to mention? We'll start off with Stuart. Well, I think the problem that the, or the challenge the Welsh government have had uh, in its first 20 years as a, as a government, as opposed to a, a, a Department of State of the United Kingdom, uh, is that it had to, first of all, understand exactly what it was going to do and what it had powers over. And what it has at the moment are a substantial number of powers over main roads, over uh, traffic in general in local authority areas, working with the local authorities. It has responsibility for funding buses and trains in Wales in terms of subsidy. What it doesn't have is a responsibility for the infrastructure on the railway or nor indeed uh, bus regulation, both of which are essential if it is to create the integrated transport policy that it says it wants. Uh, another thing I think, Stuart, the, the problem the government had certainly at the beginning was that they didn't know what to do with transport. It was attached to this, it was attached to that, it was attached to something else. I remember trying to get uh, a, a group of people together, probably as early as about 2004, uh, road haulage and all that sort of thing and, and, and other road users to try and lobby for um at least the deputy minister, but the message came back clearly from the government. Oh, join the queue, there are far more what they saw as deserving causes to get their own deputy minister. I mean, we have one now, which is good, and it does show that transport is very much further up the agenda. But I think uh, it backs up what you say, I think, in a way, Stuart, was that they didn't know what to do. It was, first of all, I can't remember, it was with planning, wasn't it? Then for a time it was with local government, then it was with something else. Uh, but it's been with economy and that now, with its own deputy minister, which uh, I think is, is encouraging for the sector. I think, um, of course, Stuart and John are absolutely right about powers. You know, things like permits and licensing, for example, you know, uh, still are not devolved. So that creates some challenges, um, you know, that I know well through my previous role with Community Transport Association, for example. But, you know, there have been some positives, haven't there, over the last 20 years. Um, so from a perspective of active travel, we've seen increased investment for active travel routes. Um, the draft budget for this coming financial year has seen the highest investment yet for active travel um, in Wales. So that's £55 million investment, £20 million more than last year. And it amounts to £17.50 per head, which compares really well to other nations. So, um, you know, Welsh Government is sort of trying to uh, make some bold uh, commitments, I think. They've, of course, um, you know, made the decision not to take 
forward the M4 relief road um, and they're looking um, or they formed the Burns Commission to look at the alternatives and I think part of that you know is in response to their declaration of a climate emergency you know they're starting to realise and show that we can't continue building new roads and we have to you know put our um, money somewhere else. They have created Transport for Wales, which I think is a really clear commitment of their um, desire to build a sustainable and inclusive transport network. And that's really positive. And they've recently been consulting on a draft transport strategy, which I think is fitting for the next 25 years. You know, they've really put people at the heart of that um, and sustainability at the heart of that. And that is what we're going to need now going forward. You mentioned the, the M4 relief road there, Christine, and it's an area we don't really want to spend a lot of time on tonight, but it is going to be, we think, a big ticket item in the election. What do you think? Has the Welsh Government made the right decision on the, its approach to the M4 relief road? We've seen, haven't we, devastation caused by flooding, you know, just looking at the last 12 months, you know, it's been um, devastating for lots of communities, um, you know, plenty of them on high alert being evacuated from their homes. This is only going to get worse. If you look at um, carbon emissions, whilst overall they have reduced um, in Wales over the last 20 years, for transport they've remained largely static. It's not the right message um, to build an M4 relief road. We need to look at the alternatives. Uh, we need to ensure that there's a good sustainable transport network, that transport is integrated with active travel and that people can get around in a more sustainable way. I think whatever anybody thinks from a transport point of view, from a Parkinson's law point of view, I mean, the space will fill, what's it, what does it say now? More space, the more you'll get filling it. And I, I think Stuart and probably Christine as well would know better than me, the greater volume of traffic around around Newport is comparatively local then. So if, if you could resolve the use of somebody jumping in their car and going from High Cross to uh, Riga Park, a lot of the problems would, would, would be alleviated. I'm not saying they would be resolved. I think they would be alleviated if you get people out of their cars for local journeys. And I think that's not just around the M4. That's in other places. That's certainly around Cardiff. It's, it's around the metropolis here of pont And it's probably everywhere else. The decision was undoubtedly the right one. And the decision has been made three times. That motorway, new motorway, has been rejected by three separate cabinets over the last 15 years. It wasn't such a good idea that it was brought back as a possibility. There are a, a, a number of reasons that have been suggested how we'd managed to get back in to the top end of the political discussion, but it did. It was quite clear that the Minister for Finance under Karen Jones uh, had decided that the funding wasn't available. And fortunately, uh, he became First Minister, um, which meant that the decision was made. John's absolutely right when he says that as you expand road capacity, so the numbers of vehicles will increase. I can quote a book called Travelling Towns by Dr. Martin Mogridge. The late Dr. Mogridge made it quite clear in his book, written in the 1960s, that that's exactly what would happen. And that's indeed what did happen. There are questions about that road, whether it should have been built, whether it should have been a new M4, or as I was asked to do by the Institute, uh, the Institution of Welsh Affairs, or ironically, I suppose, the chief executive at the time, or the director at the time of the IWA was one Lee Waters. 
uh, I'm quite sure he totally agreed with the decision to to close the the the, the whole operation. There was an alternative I was asked to to write about, which was upgrading the A48 south of Newport. I was asked what would be my alternative road, rather than the question that was asked of the South East Wales Transport Commission, which I would have preferred to have been asked, which was what can we do instead of an M4 motorway? The lesser of the two evils was to upgrade the A48, a dual carriageway road, run to the south of Newport, a whole heap of traffic lights and roundabouts, which make it almost impossible to use as a through route. But converting those into flyovers, the plans were drawn up by the Welsh Government and it could have been done. But the question now remains, should it have been done or is what came out from the South East Wales Transport Commission a series of additional railway stations of good park and ride or walk and ride to those railway stations to attract that traffic which is destined for the centre of Newport and the centre of Cardiff away from the M4 and onto the rail network. And let's remember, some of that traffic comes from over the border in England. So there are stations the other side of the border, the other side of the Severn, which again feed into Cardiff and feed into South Wales. And the improvements in the network frequency of services between Cardiff and Bristol is also going to be a part of this, as well as the stations that are being built or proposed to be built by the Commission this side of the Severn. Obviously, one of the great disappointments was on behalf of the um, freight and road haulage industry about the new M4. In a way, it's sad. Obviously, we've seen that numbers of, of lorries coming from Ireland and travelling back and forth to Ireland. Maybe it is teething problems. I, I don't think it is myself because they are going directly from, from the Republic of Ireland down to, to the continent, France mainly. Now. But is that going to have a, a, a relevant effect in, in that fresh um, haulage industry was up in arms about it? Is that going to have much of an effect on it, the fact that there isn't the same, same amount of, of freight and haulage travel? I think you have to take into account the percentage of the traffic on the M4, particularly in southeast Wales that's cars and how much of it is heavy goods vehicles. If you look at what's happening currently on the M4, a large part of the car traffic has disappeared because of furlough, because the schools are closed. Consequently, the number of lorries, although the big complaint from most car drivers is, oh, it's those lorries they get in the way. They just happen to be very large individually, but they only constitute something like 15% of the total traffic on that section of the M4. Now, you raise a very important question, John, in terms of what will happen to the Irish traffic. It's become quite clear that the Irish freight forwarders and hauliers who are responsible for moving goods into Ireland and out of Ireland have seen what's happening at Dover. And whatever the likes of Mr Gove might say, that problem continues with the kind of paperwork, even if there isn't a physical delay, but there will be physical delay continuing and the paperwork will become impossible, as many companies have said. That means that the European Union um, policy of trying to take lorries off the road and put onto the sea will now have an incentive for those operators. I worked on the, on the motorways of the sea, as it's called, project, 12 years ago now, I suppose. And the big hindrance to that kind of movement from road to sea was the fact that most hauliers, most freight forwarders thought, we know the route we've got, it's an easy route, 
will use the 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 Welshan English land bridge to get down to Dover and over uh, to the to the mainland. It's easy. But when they were forced to think about it in the last few months, the movement over to direct shipping from places like Dunleary and from the other ports in Ireland over to Roscoff, over to Cherbourg, over to Rotterdam, it might actually take a bit longer. The journey time, for example, to Calais from, from Dublin um, was around 10 hours. The, the route directly takes about 18, 16 to 18 hours, depending on which port. But of course, not everybody wants to go to Calais. There's an awful lot of traffic which is destined for parts of northern France and elsewhere, and indeed to Spain. So the European Union are very enthused, and the Commission in particular, that the work that they had done 10, 12 years ago can now possibly be put into effect to achieve the kind of objectives that Christine was mentioning earlier, the climate change objectives of removing those lorries from roads, not only in Wales and England, but also from large parts of northern France, from central France, who complained, complained about traffic coming from Spain. Now, moving that traffic onto the sea crossings also saves a lot of money in terms of driver's hours. What you might think, because surely somebody has to drive those wagons, but they don't when they're on the ships. Those are what are called unaccompanied trailers. And the trailer units are put onto the ships in the Irish ports or the French ports and sent by sea unaccompanied and picked up then by another set of drivers and tracker units at the far end. So there are savings to be made and there is no incentive in terms of paperwork, in terms of free flow of goods between the Irish Republic and indeed Northern Ireland and the mainland of the European Union. So I think there are many reasons why we will find that Mrs. Nolan and others um, will no longer be sending their lorries along the M4 or the A55, but more likely to be sending them directly to Cherbourg. Consequently, a reduction in the number of lorries, which we will see on both the M4 and the A55. We've talked a lot about sort of transport between towns and cities and between England and Wales. What do you think about rural transport? Has the Welsh Government done enough for rural communities and connecting them and allowing people who live in those areas to, to get to other economic hubs? I, I have to declare an interest as the, the person who created Charles Cymru, the, the government's uh, long distance bus operation. That was brought in uh, in 2010. We started the work on it in 2008. In answering the, the, the Welsh Government's question, what do we do about rural public transport? We've got to provide it in some way but it is costing more and more money every year. And two things developed from that. One was Transcovery, which dealt with those longer distance journeys, which uh, covered what was probably the old rail network in Wales, Carmarthen, Aberystwyth, Barmouth, Macunfleth, um, Dogesai, uh, up to Wrexham, Bangor down to Aberystwyth, and down the, the west coast to Haverford West from Aberystwyth. And then up the eastern borders, from Cardiff to Brecon to Sandrine Dodd and uh, Newtown. Now, those were the key networks, which some were, were previously rail, some weren't. But they were the areas where we identified that there was a demand for people to make those longer distance journeys. And I think that risk, which the Welsh Government took at the time, it has paid off because the numbers of people carried 
on that operation is now well over 4 million people, which for a bus operation is very high. So we've got that, we've got developments such as Booker Bus in rural, rural Wales, and now Flexibus, which has come up, uh, Flexi rather, which has come up more recently. Now, those are the kinds of developments which suit a sparsely populated area, so long as they're integrated. And I think that's the essential element. Feeder buses into the longer distance vehicles, enabling people to make more substantial journeys to the bigger settlements in Wales, like Aberystwyth, like um, Haverford West, Bangor, Wrexham, Cardiff, Swansea, uh, and, and so on. So those kinds of developments, I think, are the way in which we're going forward. We're unlikely, sadly, to have substantial rail investment in those areas at the moment. I would love to see the reopening of the railway from uh, Bangor, Canal of Avon, when down to Aberystwyth, and then a new railway from Aberystwyth to Carmarthen, but not along the route which is being proposed currently. That route has very few people living in it. There is a possibility. Uh, a number of other countries in Europe have done it. So we're not a long way away from doing that. But at the moment, I think we have to be financially realistic and see what is affordable in terms of those kinds of rural developments. But the bus undoubtedly is the only means of longer distance rural transport. We have the Heart of Wales line, we have the Cambrian line. They do operate uh, and they carry a lot of people. But I think the bus has that flexibility which can match the very widespread and sparsely populated part of Wales, and that undoubtedly is the biggest chunk geographically of Wales. It's clear that um, you know, demand-responsive transport is the answer for rural areas, demand-responsive bus. So, um, you know, the Flexi pilot is interesting. Um, that is operating in a minute across Wales. Community transport, of course, you know, is a major part of the solution for many rural communities. You know, I think it's very clear that for rural transport especially, you know, it's a very, very local issue and transport needs to be planned around the needs of those communities. And that's what community transport does best, you know, transport solutions from the ground up delivered by the community for the community, um, you know, and those solutions work well. You know, we've been, the community transport strategy that exists at the minute has been in place for 20 years and hasn't been updated, but there are plans to do that. I think um, the new transport strategy, Floyd and Newworth, is very strong on community transport and looking to put a plan in place for that. So I think that's a really good move. I would say more could be done around connecting rural communities by the national cycle network. And that's often overlooked. There's obviously, you know, always lots of pushback around rural communities and, you know, the landscape and the challenges for active travel. But actually, um, there are communities where there are good cycle links. E-bikes are becoming um, more and more popular and they are a game changer for those types of areas. So, you know, I think we need to think uh, differently about strategic cycle routes um, for rural communities as well, to, just to make, make sure you know, we're bringing in every op option uh, for those communities. I think the solutions in rural areas are going to be very different to urban areas. And I think very often politicians don't see that. They think one size fits all. And certainly what works in Cardiff or works in in uh, the northeast, or indeed works on around Bangor and Punta Canarvon, and that is different to what works in 
broader hinterland then. Um, and then secondly, I think there is um, very often a bit of um, rose-tinted uh, glasses looking at rural transport. Rural transport has never been good. You know, I got family who are from and still live in rural Monmouthshire. And I remember I used to hate going there for holidays. There was a bus twice a week. Wednesdays and Saturdays, and that was it. And it took you in the morning into into the local market town, and then it dumped you there, and you were left there all day till you came home. They then had the post buses, but then they went, so they've got nothing in the area. They had nothing in the area. Then now, I mean, I'm not saying it's wonderful now. They get four buses a day now. When you compare it to two buses a week. Four buses a day is, to use a, a good valley's expression, four buses a week is God's pocket. Um, so I think there is a, a bit of a, a rose-tinted of the things were much better than, than, in fact, they are. And I don't think that is the case, really. I mean, what Christine says is a good point, actually, that um, we need to encourage um, active travel. It, it, I mean, it's right for it, I think, particularly with e-bikes for um, decrepit people like me going up hills and that. No, I, I, I think rural transport is obviously very different to urban transport. It's stayed in the office, but I think it's often overlooked. We, we've talked about the rural aspect for buses there, and John, you've touched on the, the urban side of it. Do, do you think buses really feature strongly enough in Welsh Government over the in recent times? And do you expect whoever the next administration is to have a new approach or different approach on buses in all parts of Wales? Well, I think the die is cast, isn't it? Because the the current administration, and I think being realistic, um, and my Tory friends won't like this, um, I think the chances of them forming a government are not very great. But I think the die has been cast with the buses bill that did fall, as we know. The government have made it obvious they, they want to resurrect it. They are doing things now, um, which I'm not party of because I'm uh, I'm delightfully retired now. But um, you, you know there are schemes now to continue support for the bus industry in return for greater support, and the bus industry has to has to embrace change. I think I would say I always use again Pontypridd as the example, um, and I, I think. Wearing a, a non-bus person's hat, I don't care who runs the buses. Basically, as long as they turn up, a reliable and a decent, uh, 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 and um, uh, if I were paying a fare, and the fares weren't too much then. But I mean, up until about 1985 or so, there were two buses an hour from Pontypridd to Cardiff. There are now, is it ten an hour? I'm not sure. And even in the evening, there are two an hour. So I, I, I think. Things are better. I mean, they are far from perfect, and, and uh, the bus industry it must embrace change and try and form a partnership, I think, with, with, the, with the government and with local government. And with a big year listening to what uh, the other aspects of, of public transport want, the users and the other stakeholders, such as, such as active travel, that have come to the forefront in, in more recent years. Christine. We had Victoria Winkler on last week, and a few years ago she wrote a paper which was talking about free bus transport in Wales, which would cost around 50 million per annum. Do you see something like that in the next administration or later this decade? 
Um, in honesty, no, I can't see that. I mean, it would be great, wouldn't it? You know, if we could have, you know, if we could have free transport for people or uh, yeah, people that need it, that would be fantastic. I can't see that. I think there are questions around the financial sustainability of the services that we currently have. Some communities, you know, would be lucky just to have a bus that they could pay for. So brilliant. If we can have free transport for all, fantastic. But um, I can't see that. I think the financial constraint is certainly there. There isn't enough money floating around in government at the moment and isn't likely to be for some time. What the government has done, as John suggested, it has financed the bus companies through thin rather than thick over the last few months. And they have to realise that without that money, where the government has been paying pretty well all its concessionary fares past income and also its bus BSS3 bus grant in full to the companies, so that there would be companies there at the end of this pandemic. Because if you look at the number of buses that float around Wales with nobody on them, and what we've got is this, this, this loss of income through the fare box, through the actual paying customer. Now, 50% of costs, sorry, 50% of revenue is from um, over 60 bus passes and from direct grants. So there's another 50% to be found if we were to get anywhere near free travel. It's been tried in a few places in Estonia. They introduced about six, six years ago the free travel in Tallinn, the capital, and then introduced it in the uh, whole of Estonia on the buses and then onto the trains for citizens of Estonia to enable them to move around. The uptake was actually quite small, but you might say the thing about Estonia was it had come out from the Soviet Union where everybody was poor, except the Politburo, but everybody else was poor. And those people therefore wanted cars. They saw the West had cars. And so that influence made them go out and buy cars. So it's a slightly different situation to the one we have here, where a large proportion of families do have cars. I think, though, what people are looking for in public transport and in all the surveys done over the last few years, it's not so much the price, although that's clearly a factor. It's much more to do with frequency, with reliability, with predictable journey time. And for that, governments need to seriously look at bus lanes not start as one major city in Wales um, that I will not mention the name of, but wasn't Cardiff, will in fact um, started to take away the bus lanes. Now that's not happened anymore. And clearly um, the Welsh government wasn't terribly happy with that kind of move. So um, we do have the large free travel element in Welsh buses with the over 60s bus pass. And, Cheaper fares provided for, for example, by my bus tickets um, and other commercial uh, facilities moving onto the railways. So it's those key factors of frequency, reliability and predictable journey time and the journey time itself that people are looking for. I was told by a managing director of one of the biggest companies in Wales that runs services between Pontypridd and the top end of the valleys down to Cardiff that he had buses with space on them and yet people were getting onto the trains 
40-year-old trains packed like sardines coming down valley lines because they could more or less predict the journey time on the train, but not on the bus. We have got to get over that if the bus is going to come back as an attractive proposition instead of the car. But if we relate that back to, to rural areas, rural transport has improved. And as, as John was saying, you know, there were times when there was a bus every two hours uh, or every two days. And that certainly was the case in the area between Carmarthen and Aberystwyth. Totally rural, lots of small villages, Lampeter and Aberiron being the only two big towns. In that area, because Charles Cymru introduced its T1 service every hour, every day, then the feeder buses like Booker Bus and the other feeder buses like Community Transport feeding into those key routes enabled people to make, instead of having a choice twice a week, they now had 12 choices a day in each direction to make that journey by bus. Now, that's what's pushed up the demand for bus transport in that area. And I think that's the kind of repetition we see in other areas, and we need to, to ensure that that becomes ingrained in the uh, government's bus policy. But I think it is true to say the railways always were the, the biggie. That was the thing. That was, that, that was the, the, the darling of governments. That was what they wanted to put lots of money into. The, the, the bus companies always came second somehow. And I think there's a realisation now that in, in government that buses have a major role to play. And I think we've got to push that forward on the unfortunate advantage that's been gained from COVID, that the government has kept these companies going because otherwise they would undoubtedly have gone out of business. Jude, you mentioned the uh, time it takes to get down from the tops of the valleys to Cardiff. Until the politicians, I know Christina sat alongside me in the committee when they've been looking at things, and I, they've had the wagging finger off me, when I said, until you lot, whoever you are, all your parties, until all of you will grasp the problem of congestion, the problem of car is king, and that is the trouble, car is king, and they're afraid of the, the, that the car lobby will vote against them. Until the politicians grasp that, people will not get on the bus. And the, 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 the parallel the steward do quite properly was that people would rather get on crap trains, impact, or very often you can't get on, um, They would, uh, and the, there's plenty of room on buses, and the buses are they are modern, they are more comfortable than the blooming, uh, those awful trains that they've had to use here, until they route through, the path through to Cardiff with bus priority, so people are parked on the A470, stuck in their car, and the buses fly past on, on uh, dedicated bus lanes, people are not going to make the modal shift. So there was some wagging finger for the politicians who haven't got the guts to carry out what they what they say. Christine, when we asked you about buses, you, you seemed trepidatious that free transport could happen. But when you ask a lot of Welsh people about metros, whether that be South Wales or North Wales, they have that same trepidation that a metro could happen. Do you think they've got a, a justified in, in feeling that way, that no matter what, any government of any colour says there's not going to be any big infrastructure projects built. 
Uh, the met Metro is coming. I know James Price at Transport for Wales is very confident about that. Um, that will happen. And I really think priorities have to change. Like I say, you know, look at what's happening with our environment. We're, and we're at a point now, aren't we, where we can make the decision to do something different. We're all working differently. The way we travel has changed so many more people you know are walking and cycling from home to get to the things they need we can make some bold decisions right now and that is what needs to happen we need to see um, the next Welsh government you know taking making bold decisions that reflect the urgency of the climate crisis that we are in um, because these things are not going away um, and as John quite rightly says you know We've designed our society around the car. We've been doing that for decades. We've built things that people can't get to. We've just we've destroyed our town centres already, you know, and COVID has just kind of put the final nail in the coffin, hasn't it? Um, we need to make sure that, you know, we are bringing things back to places that are accessible and making sure that the links around them are suitable uh, for people to use so that our town centres are easy to get to and that they're nice places to be. There's a lot of work to do, but I think it's more than possible. Um, I think we need to make sure that everybody has access to the things they need close to home. And I think there's a very serious danger right now that we are going to create greater transport inequality, a wider transport gap, because we're at a point where, you know, we're promoting the electric car. So, you know, there's a consultation uh, now on a strategy for electric vehicle charging. There's no strategy for active travel. Um, you know, what message does that send out? We've got to change our priorities. If we put all this focus on the electric car, firstly, you know, it doesn't, it's not zero environmental impact. It still has a negative environmental impact. It still will create, you know, more congestion. There are growth plans for all lo local authorities. Um, you know, Cardiff alone has got 40,000 new homes planned. We're only going to have more cars on the road and we will make transport unaffordable for more people you know electric cars will be out of the price range of lots of people and then if we make you know public transport more unpopular um if there are fewer people using it you know i can see the, the prices of that going up you know we've just had an announcement about rail fare increase again you know we make transport unaffordable for many and then you know the issue with that is is that you have people then that can't access jobs and services they can't have you know the same quality of life that other people can have and we've seen that very clearly in the last 12 months you know there was a situation where if you had a car you could go to the beach you could go to the hairdressers um you could go out for lunch if you didn't have a car you were stuck at home you know and that is reality for lots of people there, there was one quote when i worked at the community transport association somebody called their home the most beautiful prison in the world because ultimately if you don't have access to transport that is what your home becomes you know you can't go anywhere and i think so many of us when you have transport you take it for granted you know and it seems like it's a means to an end it's something that gets you from a to dip a to b but it isn't that it's much more than that you know mobility is a sense of freedom and independence it is essential for 
experiencing and enjoying everyday life. Um, so I think we have to think about how we're planning our communities. You know, I really hope that our local economies are going to thrive now with more people at home and potentially working local in the future. Um, I think we have to design our communities. You know, any new housing developments has to prioritise active travel. You have to have bike parking. You've got to connect to the cycle network. You know, we're, we're, this is an injustice for people if this doesn't happen. So, yeah, you know, there's lots of work to do, you know, linking up with public transport. And we have to make sure these decisions start happening, you know, over the coming years. Or we're going to have a very serious problem on our hands in terms of social exclusion. One of the big arguments that was made with regards to nationalisation of the railways by the Labour Party in the last few years is that it would bring down the cost of rail for, for, for people. Now we see a nationalised railway in Wales the first question I want to ask is, do you think this is the right thing to do? And and secondly, what do, what do you think the future of our rail network is? Do you, do you, do you think it will stay nationalised or do you see it being put out after tender? First of all, let's look at the fair comparisons. The Welsh Government fares policy on the railways is a low fares policy. To commute from Aberdeer to the centre of Cardiff is just over 30 miles. And the cost is about £1,200 for an annual season ticket. From a similar distance commuter town into London, the cost is three and a half to £4,000. That's a clear policy by the Welsh Government to pursue a low-cost provision of, of train services. And that was even when there were private companies like Arriva and Keolis Amy running the service. The Welsh Government's objective has clearly been for quite some time. It was, it was probably most clearly set out by, the, uh, by Edwina Hart, the previous uh, transport minister. She undoubtedly wanted to nationalise the railways. Unfortunately, it wasn't possible for her to do that from the government's point of view. I don't think it has to be nationalised as such. What we have at the moment is what's called the operator of last resort. The, the, the principles of running the railway are exactly the same because they're included in a UK Act of Parliament. There has to be a company which runs the railway. It can't be run by a government department, although, hardly enough, Network Rail is wholly owned by the Department for Transport and then presumably is some kind of government department. But there has to be this structure of franchising. Now, whether uh, you do that through a publicly owned company or a privately owned company, I think the impact is the objective. The objective of a private company has to be profitability. It can't exist otherwise. The objective of a state-owned company can be whatever ministers want it to be. They can have it to make profits. They can have it to break even. They can have it to make profits to reinvest. That's a decision, but it is entirely internally within the, the rail operation and within governmental operations. I think the opportunity we've got in having a state-owned company running the railway um, on behalf of the government is that we ought to be able to get bus rail integration far better than we've ever done before. It's not guaranteed. London Transport never managed to integrate the buses and the trains but they didn't really need to, except in the outlying areas, because there were so many buses and so many trains that, you know, you waited five minutes and something would turn up. 
what we have now and what we haven't had for a long time is bus companies and train companies working together. Now, if the government has its mind on using the COVID position, unfortunately, uh, it was the, the, the thing that brought it to a head, where the, the bus companies are so um, dependent on government, their objections, which is one of the reasons that pulled down the bus services bill, um, which John referred to, was the opposition by the big bus companies to doing that. And that opposition, I think, put off civil servants, advising ministers to, to push for integration and indeed maybe make integration a condition of providing all the funding they have done and all the funding they used to do even pre-COVID in terms of the various kinds of subsidies. Now, that I think is an opportunity, it would be almost a disgrace, but it would certainly be unacceptable if the government wasn't able to do what everybody wants it to do, which is to get the buses to meet the trains so that you don't have to wait ages for a connecting bus or a connecting train um, because nobody's bothered to put the timetables together. And when we're about it, let's put the tickets together as well so that we have a London style Oyster card and you can travel either in local areas in Wales, you have your maybe your Southwest Wales Oyster card, you have your Southeast you have Cardiff Newport Valley's Oyster card, or you have a whole Wales Oyster card. But the one thing about an Oyster card is, or that kind of card, it's stored value. So you don't need to have individual kinds of passes of that sort. You have one pass and the charges being made will reflect themselves on the amount of money you've got left on your card. The, the government very kindly, I have to say, sent me to the Netherlands for a week um, some years ago, very much. And my time there was spent on work I'd done there before. Their system is very straightforward. All fares are controlled by a government agency, either local or national. But the tickets that every bus company and every train company, and they do have a degree of franchising as we do, they are all required under the terms of their contract to accept the chip and cut, which is a stored value card. And you can use it on buses, trams, to hire bicycles, to travel on the trains and, and the trolleybuses locally. Some of those infrastructure, well, the infrastructure is all owned by, by Nedrail, the state-owned train company like Network Rail. The, the services, long-distance services are run by Nederland Railway, which is the long-distance services, which is the old Dutch railway system. Local services are franchised by the, <coughs> by the province, and that province then decides on the fares. But the tickets have to be accepted. There's no question of it. And then secondly, to go back to, I think, one of Christine's main points was how you provide for cyclists, walkers, and transport. In most Netherlands towns, a town like Utrecht, same size as Cardiff, every road of any note into the center of that city has a space for pedestrians, a space for cyclists, and a space for buses. And if you're lucky, a space for cars. But let's not, let's push the cars behind. Let's get room for those key things first. Which means if you can't get in there, then you're going to use one of those means of transport. And you know that the cycleway is safe. You know that the pavement is safe because you haven't got cyclists on the pavement. And although Lee Waters told me something amazing once that it's any safe place to ride a bicycle is on the pavement, 
I think that's when Lee was at Sustrans. Uh, that's not acceptable. You know, you've got to have provision for people to, yeah, to cycle, to walk, or to go by public transport. Christine, Stuart just mentioned some of the kind of key features in notable places where active travel is really at the forefront. How do you think Wales gets there? You know, we need to see a shift in funding priorities, um, you know, to make active travel more viable. So at the minute, um, 62% of the capital transport budget is still being spent on building new roads. Um, and we need to see that change. You know, there, there is an indication that new roads are not the priority, but we need some serious commitment to that. And then, you know, from what we could save from building new roads, you know, we need to ensure that there's more invested into active travel. So at Sustrans, we'd like to see a minimum of 10% of the total transport budget spent on active travel. We need to make sure that there's a revenue stream for behaviour change because it's not enough just to create the active travel routes. You need to encourage people to use them and, you know, support them in skills, build their confidence, you know, um, show them the routes uh, and help them to access that. And then, you know, in addition to that, we, we're calling for a £20 million capital fund for the development and improvement of the National Cycle Network. We need that to be seen as um, a strategic part of the network and making sure they are integrated into the wider transport network. And we need to see them as a national asset, recognising that they benefit health, allow people to make safe and healthy journeys. You know, they're um, creating, you know, they're in, ensuring people can remain well you know, and that's really important. So yeah, more investment into active travel um, in the round and then targets for modal shift. You know, we need this to happen. We need the government to take it seriously and we need to make sure there are clear targets and that there's monitoring being carried out to, um, you know, make sure we're uh, on track to make the progress that we need. What I think uh, we need to take away is free parking and all this sort of thing that I'm delighted to say I was on the uh, uh, working group bringing in now the recommendations of no parking on pavements. You know, I'm always haranguing people out here and in my nose in, in peril when I'm going on and people uh, uh, parking on the pavement. But I think you need all of these things, uh, um, a combination of things have improved. Let, let, let's give the credit to governments. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure this was happening before devolution even, where you know we all know of 60s and 70s developments where there was no thought of buses or active travel. Active travel has come along a lot later still. I mean, there, there are estates where buses can't get through. You can't have a bus there because the bus can't turn around at, uh, at the bottom end. It is better because now the planning aspect of provision is required to take uh, account of the, the need for for access and I think active travel needs to be included in that so that there are ways that buses, cyclists, pedestrians can get from wherever the developments are. It is a bit better now. You know, I was thinking as we've been talking, a lot of the um, estates and that from the, certainly in the, in the valleys and that, um, uh, a lot of these states that were developed in the 60s and 70s are up on the side of mountains. 
because down below it was a bit um, I'm trying to think of a polite word. It wasn't the best place to live then. They're better now, and there are far more developments on the, on the valley floor. So there's no excuse now for for provision to be be made. And I think that the planning um, functions need to be a part of the uh, public transport needs to be a significant part of the planning function and, and planning road planning, and that needs to be part of um, whether it's TFW or needs to be far more. That needs to be integrated as well. I think that's a long-winded answer, but I think I was saying, yes, we need all of these things. And I think we still need cars. Let's not, let's not you know, mount a campaign against them. Of course you need cars, but people don't seem to think, oh, I can't, get the, I, I can't use public transport to go into Cardiff because the bus stop or the train station is two miles away. Well, it doesn't mean you've got to use public transport from your front door the bridging point and then you know either get on the bus or the train there as long as there are facilities to park or to leave your bike chained up or whatever. We also need to have the removal of barriers on the national cycle network because there are lots of access barriers um, you know protecting the routes um, to try to discourage dirt bikes and things like that but what it actually achieves is that you know people with disabilities who are using a trike or an adapted cycle or even you know people with prams can't get through um, at times and I think that would be a really positive thing to make sure that active travel is inclusive for everybody um, to remove those barriers so all people can use it. I've got one more area like we've talked a lot about buses uh, rail, active travel and government money is essential in all of these and one of the areas we haven't touched is of course air uh, transport and Welsh government are very crucial in that owning the airport. Where do you see our air policy going in the next administration? The Welsh government of course don't have responsibility for most of air policy. I mentioned a couple of areas in the in the, in the public transport, land public transport if you like, but the uh, Welsh Government's only involvement at the moment is owning the airport and providing, as they are now looking at a new road link into the airport, and of course, Trust Company provide uh, the, the bus link to the to Cardiff Airport. The government, the Welsh Government, have asked time and time again to have air passenger duty um, transferred to them. Um, a, you provide a source of revenue, but it also means they can deter, determine what the cost of flying from Cardiff Airport will be compared with probably our biggest competitor is Bristol and our next competitor to Cardiff Airport is, uh, is Heathrow. Now, if there were lower passenger duty rates in Wales, of course, people would, because of price, maybe start to move over. But Bristol Airport, of course, won't have it. And they are undoubtedly sitting outside the Minister of Transport for Air in Whitehall every day, muttering to him or her as they go past, you can't give the Welsh this responsibility because all they'll do is pinch our passengers. Well, I thought we were all in a competitive market uh, and we should perhaps be doing that. But other than that, very little else. For example, the First Minister was on television recently being interviewed about international travel. Well, the Welsh Government can't do anything about international travel in and out of Cardiff Airport. The only answer that Mark was able to give was we don't have any flights at the moment but that decision is entirely made by the UK government so very few kind of levers um, that the Welsh government can currently use other than 
as they have done, maintain Cardiff Airport as a viable proposition if with government support? Although Welsh policy boards have been talking about devolving APD for a long time, is there no concern about what potential environmental impact that would have if we were to suddenly have a huge influx of, of air travel to Wales? Yeah, obviously, you know, Sustrans is very much about sustainability and reducing carbon footprint. And so, yeah, you know, air travel wouldn't be something that we're particularly desperately keen to support. As this is a podcast about what we're sort of expecting to see at the election, I'm going to ask you two questions wrapped into one. What are you expecting in terms of, of big headline transport policies uh, to be proffered uh, at the Senate election? And what do you think the result will be? So we'll start with John. Well, I think I, I sort of refer to it. I, I think looking forward realistically, if you like, to who is going to come into power, I think it is likely to be um, some sort of a left centre type uh, administration, uh, however that is made up then. So I think um, we're about to see, uh, well, in fact, I think there is actually a commitment given, isn't there, to the resurrection of the, of the bus services bill. I think the direct result of that is going to be that the government is going to have more control in some way or other over bus services here. Um, I think what, what the bus industry would put forward the idea of always need to work in partnership. I think partnership is is the way forward. However, that is achieved. Um, it can't be done by just one dominant partner or one one partner taking everything over. It's a partnership of, of government, local government, bus uh, operators, and other key stakeholders such as bus users active travel users and, and uh, travel information op uh, providers. To some extent, I agree with John that what we're likely to have is either, either a, a Labour slightly minority or a Labour, uh, a Labour primary government. That's the most likely. Unless, of course, Andrew R.T. Davis becomes amazingly left of centre, which is pretty unlikely. So I think we are likely to be left with either of those two, uh, either of those two, two options or, or that combination. In terms of buses, competitive franchising, I think, has to be the way forward. It's been something that's been talked about for the last 30 years. And it's not a difficult thing to do when 50% of the income of bus companies comes from the government anyway, in the form of various grants, without which many of the routes couldn't exist. Some routes will still be commercial, um, and the companies run them in that way. But then that profit is kept by the companies rather than be fed into um, a degree of cross-subsidising. Um, we also have to have integrated ticketing and integrated fares for all bus operations, particularly where there are two companies on the same route and customers can only use one bus company if they buy their ticket in the morning and can't use maybe another bus company that uses a subsidised, uh, operates a subsidised service in, in the evening. In terms of the railway, um, as I said earlier, I think the Welsh Government always wanted to nationalise the railway in some way. And they've got the best they can get at the moment from the existing legislation. Plaid Cymru would be of the same um, persuasion. That being the case, I think they will try to hang on to being operator of last resort. And what it appears they're going to do 
is to change that operation to such an extent that it would be impossible for a private company to bid for it because its objectives would have become social, economic and environmental rather than purely economic and financial. And I think that's um, a major change that, that we might find coming. In terms of running the buses, TFW seem at the moment to want to run the buses from Cardiff everywhere. That's a non-starter. If they do it, I go back to John's word about partnership, the partnership of local authorities or consortia, as we had before, of local authorities where that fits in nicely to the journey to work pattern, that and TFW, where TFW running the railways and Charles Cymru as national uh, operations and the local authorities with Welsh government funding from the bottom up running the bus services, but making sure they all interconnect. That's what people want. Easy travel, frequent, and, and uh, as I said earlier, uh, reliable. It's that ease of travel. Um, easy jet have got the word right. Make it easy bus, easy rail, and people will start going back to it as they've done to easy jet. I think that, you know, all manifestos are going to be um, heavy on COVID response and green recovery. I think all will support a Clean Air Act. I think that's, you know, quite critical and I can't see, you know, any feeling that that doesn't need to happen. Um, I think there also could be or is likely to be a focus on revitalising town centres and how we do that is going to be important. So, you know, for us, that is about ensuring they're easy to get to and that people can travel there actively and that they are connected by sustainable transport. And then, of course, that they are you know, nice spaces that people want to be in. Then what do I think the outcome? I think this is going to be a really interesting election. You know, of course, we've got, you know, 16, 17 year old votes. Um, you, we've got, um, is it EMU nationals able to vote? You know, so we've got you know, a higher group of people who, who can cast their vote this time. Um, I think the parties are standing for some quite clear and different issues, you know, applied a very uh, strong on independence, of course, uh, others kind of taking different views on COVID response and things like that. So I think people are going to be able to make a clear choice. What do I think is going to happen? I think uh, Labour minority or Labour Lib Dem coalition. Ooh, we haven't had that one for a while. Um, thank you very much uh, to all of you for coming on this evening. If people want to get hold of you, uh, whether sort of Twitter or email, what's the best way to do so? Christine? I'm at Mrs. C. Boston. Thank you very much. John? I am, surprisingly enough, at John Pocket with two Ts. Thank you very much. And Stuart? Yeah, using my, my I still have a bardic name, Stuart Delverin at aol.com wonderful thank you all so very much for appearing on the show with us this evening if you've enjoyed what you've heard please don't forget to find us on medium at here i've book cymru on facebook at here i've book cymru and on twitter at here i've blog thank you for listening to here i've if you like what you heard please don't forget to subscribe rate and review